0: You know, um, every Sunday when we gather like this on either campus, when, when the church assembles and um, when we pray together and we ask the Lord to meet with us, we, we invoke his presence and we acknowledge our dependence upon his activity among us in order for any of our lives to be affected or transformed in any real or eternal way, when, when we open the scriptures and we, and we study the word of God, when we worship and we sing together of the glory of our God and the mercy of Jesus, every time that we do this, every single week, a battle takes place. Really, it would be more true to say that multiple battles are taking place every time that we gather. And these are battles that happen throughout the congregation. They, they happen in, uh, in, I would say, in some ways in every seat, but certainly in many of our seats. Now, it's a spiritual battle for sure, but it involves us. It's a battle that we personally, individual, as human beings, that we are engaged in. And it really is a war of of kingdoms. It's a war which is to settle the issue of who will be king in my heart. Who is going to be Lord? Will I be Lord of my life? Will I drive my own ship? Will I command my own destiny? Will I make my own decisions? Will I be my own man? Or will... Jesus be the Lord of my life. The battleground is our heart and the issue over which we fight is the throne of our heart. Now for some of us, admittedly and in fact joyfully, we would say the battle is essentially over. Now, What I mean by that is, many of us would say, well I've already come to faith in Jesus, I've given my heart to Christ... And I seek to serve him. I want to walk with him. He really is my Lord. I, I, I'm not fighting that battle anymore. That's not to say that we've arrived and that there aren't momentary skirmishes, right, where, where uh, you know, the flesh rears its head or, or, or Satan gets a foothold and we have to die to ourselves. And so those battles are ongoing. But for many of us, we would say, you know, while I, I haven't arrived yet, I'm not fighting this issue any longer of who's going to be Lord in my life. For some of you, the battle's just beginning. It really is. Um, you're kind of new to this conversation. You're, you're new to maybe church world, and, and you're experiencing something as you come in, as you sit, as you hear the songs, as you, as you pray with us, as you hear the message. There's this thing going on in you, and, and it's hard even to articulate what it is. But it's this thing that now you're struggling about giving your life to Christ and surrendering your life completely to Jesus, and it's kind of a new thing for you, and you're wrestling with that. And for some of you, it's, it's an ongoing battle. For some of you, this is a, a war you have been engaging in for years, and Christ has been on your trail, and As one has said, the hound of heaven barking on your heels. He's pursuing you and you've been resisting and running from him perhaps for many, many years. And I get it. The struggle is real and the stakes are high. And the king that you're engaged in this battle with, namely Jesus, the king that you're resisting He deals with you, and you should be glad for this, very graciously, amen? Very graciously, very patiently, showing grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And we ought to be grateful for that mercy, that extended patience and long-suffering. But here's what you should know. Every time you rebuff him, every time you resist his call to surrender to him while he is patient in the moment. A little more wrath is stored up for future judgment. Every time you say no, a little more wrath goes in to the store, the storehouse. You don't have to turn. Let me just read it to you. Paul writes about this Patient mercy of God, and yet that stored up wrath that comes as a result of it. Romans chapter 2, I'll read it to you. Romans 2, verse number 4 says this Do you despise the riches of God's goodness? Do you despise God's forbearance? Do you despise God's patience? Do you not know that it is the goodness of God, the patient mercy of God, that is drawing you to repentance? And do you continue to resist and push that away? Verse 5, if you do, as your heart or after your heart is hardened continually and you are unrepentant, Romans 2, 5 says, you are treasuring up or storing up unto yourself wrath. For the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Do you hear those words, those words of warning? It is the mercy of God, the goodness of God calling you to repentance. And every time you engage in this battle with him and push him away, a little more wrath is stored up. And so, so I urge you, I, I implore you, surrender your life to Christ and do it today. Do not rebuff him again. Don't Leave this service today having won the battle for the day, only to fight it again tomorrow and to fight it again next Sunday and to store up more wrath. Because I promise you, ultimately, Jesus Christ will triumph, either in you or over you. But ultimately, Jesus will triumph. Now, what is true in everything that I've just described about this personal, individual battle that happens in our hearts? Everything that is true of us individually is also true of the whole world. Because the Bible tells us that one day, Jesus Christ will reign, not just over our hearts individually, but Christ will reign as King over the whole earth. And this is why I've asked you to turn to the book of Daniel today, Daniel chapter number 2. In this passage, Daniel's prophecy speaks to this coming kingdom of Jesus Christ over the earth. Let me take you to Daniel chapter 2 and look with me in verse number 31. Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, has had a dream. And in chapter two, Daniel is going to interpret his dream for him. The dream in, in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, mind, uh, in his nighttime dream, was of, of a great statue. And he begins to describe it, Daniel begins to describe it in verse number 32. Well, verse 31. Thou, O king, saw and behold a great image, a great statue. This is what you saw in your dream. And this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible or awesome. Daniel goes on to say in verse 32, the image's head or the statue's head was of fine gold. His breast and arms were of silver. His belly and thighs were of brass. His legs were of iron and his feet part of iron and part of clay. Then you saw in your dream until a stone that was cut out without hands hit that image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, broke them to pieces then was the iron and the clay and the brass and the silver and the gold. In other words, the entire image was broken, shattered into pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that no place was found for them. And the stone that had smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there's the dream. There's, there's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You saw this great image. It has a head of gold. It has shoulders and arms and upper torso of silver. It's midsection. is brass. Its legs are of iron. And its feet and toes are iron and clay mixed together. Now the Bible goes on then to describe or to interpret what that image actually means. And we don't have to wonder. The Bible tells us exactly what the dream uh, was conveying. Look in verse number 38. At the end of verse number 38... Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you or your kingdom, you are this head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar dreams about an image with a head of gold and and Daniel says, this head of gold on the statue, this is the Babylonian empire. He goes on to say in verse number 39, after thee shall arise another kingdom and then a third kingdom and then a fourth kingdom kingdom. So the image that Daniel is interpreting, or the image dream, I should say, that Daniel is interpreting is a statue or an image which represents four successive kingdoms uh, in the world. So we know that the first one is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the empire of Babylon. Verse 38 makes that clear. We then know from history that Babylon was replaced by the Medo-Persian empire, we then know the Greeks came third, and then the Roman uh, Empire came fourth following the Greeks, uh, the Greek Empire. So this statue represents there in that Middle Eastern, Eastern part of the world, and really the beginning of Western civilization, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Now, he goes on to say then in verse number 34, 35, that this image standing was suddenly destroyed by a stone that came from heaven. Verse 35 says that it that it smote the image, it smote the empires, they collapsed. Verse 30 of 35 says, then that stone became a great mountain and filled the whole world. Look down at verse 44, you'll see the interpretation of this stone coming from heaven. Verse 44 says, and in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Stop right there. So he's talking about earthly kingdoms. The image represents earthly kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. In the days of these earthly kingdoms, verse 44 says, God will set up a kingdom. Now what will this kingdom be like? Verse 44, it is a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, This kingdom shall not be left to other people, like the Babylonian kingdom was handed off to the Persians, and that kingdom was handed off to Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and that kingdom was handed off to to the Romans. He says, this kingdom that God will establish will never be handed off to other people, but rather it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." And so this is the kingdom of God in the earth or the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, let's do a little bit of history. If y'all are still with me, shout amen. You with me? Okay, so let's do a little bit of history. It was during the Roman Empire, wasn't it, that Jesus came and entered into the world. Now, if you're not sure about that, let me remind you of the story you're gonna be reading in just a few weeks in Luke chapter number two about the Nativity, which says in Luke chapter two, verse number one, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Alexander the Great, right? No. Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian, right? No. It went out from Cyrus the Persian. Who'd it go come out from? Decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the Romans. It's during the Roman Empire that Jesus Christ came into the world, that great stone came into the world to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. And the Bible says repeatedly that that's what Jesus came to do, was to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. In fact, this was the message of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Say those last words with me out loud. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 2,000 years ago, John was saying, get ready. The kingdom is coming. And then the Bible says in that same book of Matthew, chapter 12 and verse 28, these are the words of Jesus himself. Jesus said, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Say it out loud with me. The kingdom of God has come unto you. John the Baptist said the kingdom is here. Jesus said the kingdom has arrived And we even declare this in our own vision statement as a church. Do you remember it? It's on the screen. Let's say it out loud. Let's do this together. We believe that Jesus came to build a church that would overpower the forces of hell and enlarge the what? The kingdom of God. We envision being that church. So we believe that the kingdom of God promised in Daniel 2 The kingdom of God came with Jesus. The kingdom of God has come to the earth. It's arrived, hasn't it? Well, the answer is yes, but not fully. In fact, here's the way I would say it. Why don't you write this down? What we would say about the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is now and not yet. The kingdom of God is now, it is here, but it's not yet here. Or at least we would say it is not yet fully here, it has not yet fully arrived. So in what way is the kingdom of God in the earth today? Well, the kingdom of God exists in the world as a spiritual kingdom. And so Christ reigns. But he reigns over his kingdom from heaven. Where is Jesus today? Now, I know he dwells in our hearts, but where is Jesus seated today? He's in our hearts by his spirit, in our lives by his spirit and dwelling us. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of God Almighty, reigning, and so he reigns from heaven. He operates in the world by his Church empowered by his spirit. We are the body of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit in this world. And while he reigns from heaven, we in this world declare his domain, we we declare his reign, we say that he is king, and we advance his kingdom in the world. By the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by sharing the good news, and as folks surrender to Christ, that spiritual kingdom is enlarged and Satan's domain or dominion is diminished. This is the kingdom of God in the earth. Christ reigns from heaven, we operate in the world. But this is not the fullness of the kingdom. This is not, the kingdom in this spiritual form in the world is not all of the kingdom that this world will ever see. In fact, the Bible tells us a lot about what that kingdom is going to be like. Go with me, if you will. Go ahead and leave Daniel. I think we're finished there. So go back to the book of Isaiah. And I know I told you to mark Revelation. We're going there, I promise. But go to Isaiah, first of all. Let's go to chapter 11. I would have asked you to mark this one too, but you only have so many fingers. Isaiah 11 describes for us what this coming kingdom will be like. Remember, the kingdom of God currently exists in the world spiritually as Christ reigns from heaven. If you are listening, shout amen. amen. I hope you shouted amen at Merriman as well. Listen carefully. Jesus currently reigns from heaven over a spiritual kingdom in the earth, but one glorious day King Jesus is coming to the earth. And when Jesus comes to the earth, he will bring the kingdom with him. And he will reign over the kingdom of God in its fullness, in its totality, on planet earth. Listen to how Isaiah 11 describes this. Look with me beginning in verse number four. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and, the, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins or the sash that he will wear. Righteousness and faithfulness. In this kingdom, verse 6 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with with the kid or with the calf. The calf and the young lion and the fatling will all be together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, and their young ones lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play on the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You ought to say amen right there. It is a wonderful kingdom that's come a perfect world, a place of peace, a place of safety where they shall not learn war anymore and there shall be no hurt or no harm. And the knowledge of the Lord, verse nine says, shall cover the entire earth. Verse 10, in that day, this will occur. Verse 11 says, it shall come to pass in that day, God will fulfill his promises to Israel. Look at chapter 12 and verse number one. In that day, Israel will say, O Lord, I praise thee. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you are comforting me. Verse number two Israel shall say, Behold, God is my salvation. Verse number three Israel will with joy draw water out of the wells of salvation. Verse 4, in that day Israel shall say, praise the Lord. Verse 5, sing unto the Lord for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. And so the Bible says that one day Jesus is coming. Revelation 20 describes the kingdom as well. So one day Jesus the king will come and in all of its fullness the kingdom of God will exist here on this earth. But Here's what you have to know that in the same way that the kingdom of self within us will not yield to King Jesus without a fight, and that's the battle that I was describing when I began, that battle that happens in our hearts when we assemble. In the same way that our personal kingdoms won't go down without a fight, the kingdoms of this world will not go down without a fight. And that fight, that battle, is called the Battle of Armageddon. And this is why I've asked you to turn to Revelation chapter number 16. So why don't you do that all the way over to Revelation chapter number 16? In your hand, but we're, we're gonna talk about the Battle of Armageddon as we, as we get into chapter number 16 of Revelation. But I want you to write down your prophetic point today. In your handbook. And it's simply to say this. One day the world's armies, along with the Antichrist, will gather at Armageddon to fight against Jesus at his appearing. One day the armies of the world will gather with the Antichrist at Armageddon to fight against Jesus at his coming. I'm going to read this passage beginning in Revelation 16, uh, beginning in verse number 13. So John says, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. That's the devil, the beast, that's the Antichrist, the mouth of the false prophet. We learned about that unholy trinity last week. Saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. These are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Verse 16 And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now that's the assembling of the army for the battle. One day, as the prophetic point said, the world's armies will assemble. They will gather with the Antichrist to fight against Jesus. his coming. They assemble in chapter 16. The battle actually is recorded in chapter 19. Turn to Revelation 19 and verse 11. You'll see the battle of Armageddon unfolding. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war." His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture or wearing a robe that had been dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword That with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he is treading the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. That is simply to say a sash that comes across his chest, stretches down across his thigh with this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heavens, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, and small and great. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, which wrought miracles before him, with which miracles he had deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both were cast into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Revelation 16 describes the assembling of the armies of the world into the valley of Armageddon. Revelation 19 describes in graphic detail uh, the battle itself. One other thing in your handbook. Go ahead and fill in these blanks for your focus factor. Let's let's understand that the battle of Armageddon will bring about the destruction of all earthly kingdoms and the ushering in of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is, quite literally in Revelation 19, the fulfillment of Daniel chapter number 2, the kingdom that has been promised and then is established when Christ returns. let's talk about the battle, the battle of Armageddon. Let's begin by talking about the immensity of the battle. The immensity of the battle. Consider, first of all, back in Revelation chapter 16, consider uh, the place where the battle will occur. Look in Revelation 16 and verse number 16. Scripture says, And he gathered them together, that is, Satan, through the influence of the Antichrist and the false prophet, He gathers together uh, into one place all the armies of the world, and the place where they are gathered, verse 16, is called in the Hebrew tongue the place of Armageddon. Armageddon. You know, the, the very name, the word Armageddon, strikes fear in the heart of every person old enough to have any sense at all of the connotations of that word. I will never forget the first time I ever heard a newscaster speaking of events in the news and using the word Armageddon to describe them. It was on September 11, 2001. As the events of 9-11 unfolded, and I forget now which network it was, like many of you, I was flipping back and forth between networks watching the news. And one of those uh, network hosts said, this is like... Armageddon. The word Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words, har, H-A-R, which means hill or mountain, and Megiddo, har, Megiddo, armageddon. And it means, the word har is hill, the word Megiddo means slaughter. So the word itself means the mountain of slaughter. And yet, it's not a symbolic place at all, it is a very literal place place. Megiddo is an ancient city in northern Israel. It's about 10 miles from Nazareth, about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. If you've been to Israel with Tracy and me, you've been to Megiddo. I don't think we've ever taken a Bible study tour to Israel that we didn't visit Megiddo. This hill or tail Megiddo is situated along, right adjacent to a gigantic valley a vast depression called the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Armageddon. Megiddo has been occupied by empire after empire after empire after empire dating all the way back beyond three, four thousand years ago. And this valley has been the location of countless battles throughout the years. Now, I'll give you a little bit of geographic information about the Valley of Armageddon. If you've been to Israel, you'll recall this. Uh, you have on the east, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Valley of Armageddon, there's a mountain range called the Mount Carmel uh, Range, the Carmel Range of mountains. That would be the, to the east side, uh, I'm sorry, to the west side of the valley. To the north, you've got the... Um, the the upper Galilee Mountains, and then to the west, you've got the mountains of Moab in the Jordan Valley. And lying between the Mount Carmel Range and the Galilee Range and the Moab Range is this vast, almost perfectly flat depression or a valley. It is 14 miles wide. And it stretches at its longest point 30 miles long. Which means that the Valley of Armageddon is in the valley floor over 420 square miles. It is a vast valley floor. i give you a little bit of perspective. You could take the city of Asheville, the actual city limits of, of the city of Asheville from Candler uh, in the west, all the way to near Swananoa in the east, and from Woodfin in the north down to Arden in the south, you could take the city of Asheville and sit it in the Valley of Armageddon ten times. That's how big this valley is. And throughout the ages, countless battles have taken place here. Judges chapter five records the battle of Barak and Deborah when they fought with Sisera in Judges five. Gideon's 300, you remember that wonderful story from Judges seven? That battle occurred with the Midianites in the Valley of Armageddon. King Solomon fought in the Valley of Armageddon. The Canaanites fought there. The Egyptians fought there. There were four different crusader battles with Saladin that happened in the Valley of Armageddon. There were battles during World War II in the Valley of Armageddon. It is a natural battlefield. In fact, one of the most famous warriors in history, Napoleon Bonaparte, fought in the Valley of Armageddon. And in 1799, Napoleon said this, standing at Megiddo, looking over the valley, he said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces On this vast plain, it is the most natural battleground in the world. And this location, the valley of Armageddon, is the location of the final battle. Revelation 16 says that they will gather, the armies will gather there. Revelation 19 says Jesus will come and the clash will occur. The battle of Armageddon will happen there. Now let's ask ask and answer some questions about this battle. First question would be to simply say, when will this battle occur? Could it happen tomorrow? No. The battle will occur, we know, at the end of the tribulation period. How do we know? Because the battle will happen when Jesus comes again, Revelation 19. That's at the end of the tribulation period. That's when it will happen. Who will be there? Who will be fighting in this battle? We'll look at Revelation 19, verses 19 and 20. You'll get the exact answer. Revelation 19, verses 19 and 20, he says, And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, he will be there with his forces. The kings of the earth and their armies will be there. That is, the powers of the world will gather there with their armies. They will be gathered together there. Verse number 20 says, The beast was taken and the false prophet with him. So the false prophet will be there. Who's coming to fight? The armies of the world under the leadership of the Antichrist and the influence of Of the false prophet. Third question is why have they assembled? Why? Why does chapter sixteen tell us that they are coming there? Well, uh, the truth is there will be various uh, motivations in play. Uh, The antichrist will already be assembled there because at this point in the tribulation he's attacking the Jewish people. We've learned that, and so he has his forces assembled, staged there, and attacking the country of Israel, the land of Israel. Uh, chapter 16, verse 12, tells us that the kings of the east are coming. Look at that chapter. Chapter 16, verse 12. The waters of the, of the um, Euphrates River are dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. These would be kings from uh, the powers of China, perhaps India, maybe Russia, that they would be advancing from the east into that valley And they would be advancing there to challenge the authority of the Antichrist. They're coming there to fight with the the beast. Daniel 11 tells us that another vast army is coming from the south. From Egypt and Libya, from Africa, they're coming to challenge the Antichrist as well. But they all arrive, they're all being deceived and brought together. Chapter 16, verse 16 says, or verse 13 says, they're being deceived and brought there to come together to fight against each other. But once they're all there, they join forces and they are going to fight against Christ as he returns. We know this from chapter 17, look at it, Revelation 17. And verse number 14, describing all of these armies that have gathered, chapter 17, verse 14 says, These shall make war, not with one another, but they shall make war with the Lamb. That's with Jesus. Look at Revelation 19 and verse 19. It says the same thing. Revelation 19, verse 19, And I saw the beast, it's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies, and they were gathered together. Why? Why? to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So when will the battle happen? End of the tribulation period. Who will be there? The beast, the false prophet, all the empires and armies of the world assembled into this vast plain. They will come together, drawn together by the deception of the enemy and then prepared, all assembled together and they will wage war against Christ when he comes. And so this is the immensity of the battle. This immense battlefield filled with the armies of the world. Now, secondly, I want you to think with me about the righteousness of God that's on display in this battle. Jot that down somewhere in your notes. The righteousness of God that is on display in this battle. So here's the truth. I just want to be really upfront about this and honest. There's no getting around it. Any reading of these passages about the coming of the lord in the battle of armageddon are gruesome in their graphic description of what will occur i mean there's not another word for it it is a gruesome display of wrath let me just give you an example of what i mean some of these we've already read but look at chapter 19 verse number 17 I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried to the birds of the air, "Gather together!" You imagine you've got a day when this angel says, "Hey, hey, birds, hey, vultures, gather!" And from all over the area, these these birds are coming because there's going to be a feast for them, as bodies are strewn throughout the floor of that valley. Come and fill yourselves with flesh. Chapter 19, verse number 13 makes a passing mention of something that people often don't grasp its meaning. Chapter 19, verse 13, this coming King Jesus is wearing a robe dipped in blood. And very often people read that and go, oh, praise the Lord, blood of Jesus shed. That's not what that means. The word actually dipped doesn't mean dipped. It means stained or splattered with blood. Why? Look at verse 15. Because what he is doing, verse 15 at the end of the uh, verse, says that he is treading the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. Now I want you to turn back one page to Revelation chapter number 14 and look with me at verse number 18. In preparation for this battle... Verse 18 of chapter 14 says, And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over the fire, cried with a loud voice to him that had a sharp sickle. You know what a sickle is, right? It's an ancient harvesting tool uh, where you you cut down the the sheaves and you gather them in. You cut down the the, uh, grapes and clusters of the vine and you gather them in. Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine, the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress. Stop right there. If the grapes are cast into the wine press, and the wine press is a vast floor where you would put your grapes on a flat space, and then you would stomp on those grapes and you would crush them, and the grape juice would splatter up on your robe. Then Revelation 14 says that the grapes gathered to the wine press, if blood is flowing from the wine press, the grapes are people. And the grapes are gathered to the wine press. Where is the wine press? It is that immense valley floor of Armageddon. They are gathered in the wine press, and Revelation 19 says that when Jesus comes, his robe is dipped in blood, because, verse 15, he is treading the winepress of the wrath and the fierceness of Almighty. God. If you're following me, say Amen. There's no describing what's happening except to say that it is a gruesome time of judgment. And yet, hear me say this, this judgment is completely righteous. It is absolutely perfectly measured and it is justly deserved. In fact, if you read all of Revelation chapter 16, you find out that what's happening here at the end of the tribulation leading up to this this final battle of Armageddon is that bowls of wrath are being poured out. Seven bowls that have been filled to the brim are being poured out and they are horrific judgments on this world for sin. And repeatedly throughout those bowls being poured out, the angels step back and they survey the wrath of God upon sinful man and the angels say, you are righteous, O God. You, you are righteous, O God. Now, I'm not making it up. Look at it. Verse number five. I'm in chapter 16, verse five. As the bowls are being poured out, verse five, I heard of the angel of the water say, you are righteous, O Lord, which are and was and shall be because you have done this. For they, these people, have shed the blood of saints and the blood of prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Verse seven, I heard another out of the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. No angel in heaven looks at what God is doing and goes, Oh, that's terrible. Oh, I can't believe God would do that. That's so mean. No, those with the right view of justice say, God, you're right. This is what is deserved. It is the absolute righteousness of God. Chapter 19, verse 11 says the same thing. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now I want you to hear very carefully what I'm telling you. Throughout human history, God has patiently mercifully. Every morning the sun rises with new mercy. Every evening the sun sets when new mercies keep us through the night. Every single day there's mercy upon mercy upon, patience upon patience upon, grace upon grace, and the world continues to blaspheme, and the world continues to resist, and the world continues to demand its own, and the wrath keeps getting stored up, and stored up, and stored up, and stored up. And by the way, if you remember from Genesis chapter number six, God judged the world before in totality with a flood. And when Noah and his family came off the ark, God said, I'm going to make a covenant. I will not do this again until the final day of judgment. And to be my own reminder, as if God needed a reminder, He said, I'll put a bow in the sky. He said, when I see the bow, he didn't say when you see the rainbow, he said, when I see the rainbow, I'll be reminded that I will not judge again. And man from the flood forward continued to defy and rebel against God. And I would suggest to you that every day since the flood waters receded in Genesis chapter number nine, man has rebelled, God's looked at the rainbow. A little more grace. Man's continued to rebel, God's looked at the rainbow. A little more grace. And it start to rain. and God, no, no, I'm not going to do it. There's a rainbow, a little more grace. But every time he gives patience, he stores up a little bit of wrath. You hear your pastor this morning, one day the rainbow won't show up. Amen. And when the rainbow is gone, the wrath will pour out. The wrath of God is perfectly righteous. And he will judge this world for sin. Well, the Bible tells us in Revelation 19 that he will come and this battle will ensue. But the truth is, it's really no contest at all. In fact, you should probably write it down somewhere. Christ will win the victory. Amen. This is not a long campaign. It's not gonna take, they're not going to be reporting on CNN. Well, it's in the 239th day of the battle in the, of Armageddon. This is only a moment when Christ will come as king. He will win the victory. He will conquer fully. Verses 20 and 21 says that the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet will be taken, verse 21, or verse 20, and these will be cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest of those in the valley, those armies, will be consumed by the word of Christ. Christ will win. I began my time with you today by saying. That every Sunday when we gather, there's a battle. And every time you say no to Jesus, you listen to me. Every time you say no to Jesus, a little more wrath is stored up. And one day the rainbow won't come out for you again. One day your opportunity will be gone. One day you will die. One day Christ will come. And in that day, nothing will be left for you except the righteous wrath of a holy God that you and I both deserve because we're sinners. And so I beg you, don't tell him no today. Surrender in the battle today. You know what you do when you surrender? You throw your hands up. I give up. I give up. My prayer is that today you will listen to the Holy Spirit and you will throw your hands up You'll surrender. In fact, that's your next step. I hope all of you will take it. Knowing that Jesus is Lord, I should humbly surrender my kingdom to him, my life. And I should do that without fighting, without a battle. He's going to win anyway, either in me or over me. I should surrender. Now that might mean that you need to give your life to Christ to be your Savior. Perhaps a number of us in this room need to do that. For some it might mean how you're living your life. You already know Jesus but you keep resisting and running from him in various places and ways. For some it might have to do with your marriage or some other relationship or some area of your life but Christ is king, he's Lord. He wants to reign so stop fighting him. Surrender to him. Let's pray together.